Hi, this is Crystal Cyrus from the OOTW Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 103, U2. <laughs> I'm Chris McBrien, and that is Derek Myers, caveman himself. You'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien, and Derek is available at Amaron underscore DM. And you'll find popcultureworld.com is our website. If you get a chance, if you like the show, make sure and leave us a review on iTunes. We would obviously love that. Derek, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, you know what? I, I'm a little embarrassed and, and somewhat ashamed to admit that there is not a whole lot going on in my pop culture world this week. Largely because my favorite hockey team, the Boston Bruins, oh, yes. is still in the hockey playoffs and has advanced to the conference finals, which probably most of our listeners are like sports don't care. So that that has been that has been my driving force this week. My big thing is um, in two. I mentioned this on the podcast previously, and I actually did a show from there when I attended in 2016. I attended Fan Expo in Toronto. I I love going to these kind of you know conventions where there's like celebrities and they're like they're doing Q&As and you can go and buy comic books and all that kind of stuff and Fan Expo was certainly the biggest one I've ever been to and I went in 2016 obviously came in you remember I came down I interviewed you for this podcast back then first time that you were ever on the show because um, you were in the uh, the gaming section and, and but I haven't been back since so I took my son at the time uh, he was he was like seven years old at the time and I uh, took him he loved it and we went to see all these great things there and I'm thinking about going back this year and one of the main reasons is, is that as you know I sort of inject with my son all of this Gen X stuff you know I try and make him watch all the Gen X movies and, all, and he loves it all and one of the movies that we absolutely love watching over and over again is The Goonies and this year scheduled to come to Fan Expo are some of the stars of The Goonies so Kei Kwan Corey Feldman and Sean Astin are all going to be there. So I'm thinking, oh, I haven't told my son yet, but if I tell him, he's going to lose his mind to go and meet those guys. So I think we might have to go. And you're a big fan of Blade Runner, right? Like I, we, I am indeed. And I, yeah, I'm just, I called up the Fan Expo website as you were chatting. I see here that we've got on on schedule, we've got Sean Young, Rutger Hauer, and Edward James almost are all scheduled to appear so i, I, I may have to make a point of getting down there this year kind of cool jeff goldblum's gonna be there as well those guys uh like sean young rutger hauer and edward james almost would be cool to meet but sean young like i liked her just because she was in uh two of my favorite comedies from the 80s uh one was called young doctors in love you've probably never even heard of it and i've heard of it i've never seen it it was done by gary marshall uh his first kind of foray into movies before he did pretty woman and she was in that she was great and then of course she was in stripes so the fact that she, I, I just would like to go and see her, I, it's like she was in Blade Runner. Who cares? I want to talk to you about Stripes, you know, and Wait, like, Chris, you don't want to talk to her about her appearance in the movie Dune. Uh, yeah, well, nobody wants to talk about the movie Dune. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, so there's that. But I don't know. So I'm thinking about going down there again. I, I'm just going to keep watching the page and see who else ends up going. I like going down and um, I like going and seeing some of the vendors. Um, I like looking for comic books with my son he loves he loves that as well and then i just like doing the q a's and he actually really enjoyed it i took him to the mark hamill q a in 2016 and he really enjoyed it and uh, i think we could enjoy just you know seeing some of the stars of the goonies and stuff like that i don't know so that's kind of what's on my radar right now for nice. me but nice. you know I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, so this for this episode of the show, uh, you actually proposed a topic. So uh, it was it was a very uh, popular band that you like very much. So are you ready to get started and dive right in and start talking about them? Absolutely. All right, let's hit it. I was like, oh my God, that was incredible. Okay, so we got the millennials take on it. It's weird. We might get to scorched earth yet. But you often have the... A textbook dancer. Correct me if I'm wrong. Does that make sense? Yep. You've been doing a lot of stuff from the 80s, a lot of comedies. Holiday Rap by MC Micro G and DJ Swen. So this wasn't a film that I grew up with. It's boring as shit. I think I know that. Could you sing us a few bars? What the living hell am I watching? 
Okay, so Cave, you mentioned that you really like the band U2. And I mean, lots of people like U2. They're great, right? So you wanted to to talk about U2 and do a whole show on U2. So I thought that we would start off by talking about the band, kind of maybe a bit about what we like about them or what, what they meant to us, you know, personally. And then we'll get into a top five list and we'll do our top five favorite U2 songs of all time. But I'm going to let you kind of take us away because you're the one that proposed this topic. So I'm going to let you kind of get things started uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about U2 this week. Uh, so you want to take it away? Absolutely. Okay. So as you mentioned, U2 is a uh, phenomenal rock band. They have been around since the late 70s, early 80s, and they are still to this day producing new material, still touring. They are one of those rare examples of a band that has lived through and survived and continue to be prolific as music has changed through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, and 2010s. And you don't, there are very, very few artists that can say that. In fact, I, I, I struggle to think of more than one or two others that have had the kind of success U2 has had for this length of time in these same years. So we previously did a show on Queen. And I, I love Queen. You love Queen. A lot of people like Queen. The movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out this year. It won a lot of awards. It was very popular. made a lot of money. But with the death of Freddie Mercury, that for all intents and purposes was the end of Queen. Now, I know that surviving members of Queen have a new singer and they continue to perform, but they they basically just play all the greatest hits. They're mm-hmm. not putting out new material, and if they are, it's and, certainly and, not charting. And, and sorry, and John Deacon's not even with them. Like he he basically said in 1991 when Freddie Mercury died, that's it, Queen is done, and he's not touring yeah. with them. So it's just Roger Taylor and Brian May. But uh, yeah, you're right. So, They're just doing their old stuff. They're not making anything new, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Their old stuff is phenomenally good. It's fantastic. Oh, but that's awesome. <laughs> the library. The library has a, you know, it's, it's just got to start and a finish. Like it's a closed book. You have X number of songs and this is it. You're not getting new material. Whereas with you two, they continue to put out new material. Now, now hardcore older fans like you and I may have a fondness for what they put out in the eighties and the nineties and think that was when you two was at their peak and you may not really care for their newer stuff, but there are a lot of people that like the newer stuff and there are some people who are younger people who prefer the newer stuff because that is what was popular as a new release as they were growing up. And I think that's true with a lot of bands. People who have a fav- quote unquote, favorite band, it tends to be a band that is putting out new material in your most formative pop culture years, say between like 13 and 21. So as you're a teenager going through high school and maybe if you go to college, university, like when new material is coming out at that time, those are the bands you tend to to latch onto and and feel the most kinship with. Well, for you two, they've been doing this for forty years. So if those are the years that you attach yourself to you two, they have a phenomenal fan base that spans generations, right? Like what's the tagline for this show? The pop culture podcast for the generations. You two is a band for the generations. You know, different the older people, younger people. Everyone can find something by you two they like, whether it's because it was popular when they were younger or or in their teens, or whether it's because they can appreciate something from the 80s, even though they're a younger person, and say, it's an older tune to me. I consider it, quote, unquote, classic rock, but I can appreciate it. I love it. It's great. I, you know, I want to hear it. It's on my playlist. It's one of my favorite songs. So that was a big part of why I wanted to talk about you two. They have this cross-generational appeal and their music style has evolved and continued to change and in some cases continue to drive change for music over many many years over many many decades um so with that chris why don't you jump in? Well, talk to us but, a little bit about you. Yeah, before I do, I want to ask you a question because it's going to lead yes, into what I'm going to talk about. So, how did you first come to hear you two? How did you first come to like you two? What was your first experience with them? And then I'll share mine. Okay, uh, so this would have probably been around '86, so I would have been about 12 years old, which is sort of. I, I really started getting into music like around, say, 11, 10, 11, like 84, 85, 86 was when I really started to just – music became a big thing. I got a stereo for Christmas. I started buying 
albums and cassettes. Mm-hmm. I was recording songs off the radio. I was making my own mixtapes. Like music became a an important pop culture piece for me. Well, and, we mentioned before on the show that yes. that that age eleven year is a pivotal one for a lot of people. That's when you start to to kind of listen to more music. You start to watch more movies and TV shows and that kind of thing. So it seems like it was right right around that time for you as well. Yeah, for sure. And I grew up in a house where country and Western music was oh, the popular choice. Like oh, my parents man. do not do not and have never cared for pop music. They they were into uh, country and Western, which I mean, if that's all you hear growing up, you learn to appreciate it. But it wasn't really ever my bag. I mean, I if I had to listen to it growing up, I'd still hate it. <laughs> it's funny. I go to like trivia night sometimes and they do like identify this song and they play <laughs> you know country it. Western music from like the 70s and 80s. And I'm like, oh, I know that. And people are like, oh, that's Tammy Wynette. Oh, yeah. Possibly know this song so quickly. And it's like, <laughs> hey, this is why. Uh, that's so hilarious. for me. Getting into pop music in the mid '80s, the, what I was hearing on the radio was unlike what I was hearing at home. Not that, again, not that my parents were real pop culture people, so it's not like they were constantly listening to music. But on those rare occasions when we had the music in the car or my mom had a radio on, it was like oldie goldies or country and western. So when I'm hearing like, you know, the basically the rock and the synth pop and the new wave of the '80s and, and a little bit of punk and a little bit of classic rock, like this was unlike anything I'd heard before. So I can remember. 85, 86-ish, probably closer to 86, U2 had Pride in the Name of Love from The Unforgettable Fire. And that was, to the best of my recollection, that was sort of my first favorite U2 song. I I, I heard it. I liked the song. I didn't necessarily understand what all the lyrics meant, um, but I liked the tune. I liked the, the sound of it, and I immediately fell in love with the song. And then less than a year later, they put out The Joshua Tree in 87, and we had where the streets have no name and with or without you. And I still found what I'm looking for. And it's like, wow, this just like blew my mind. I'm like this, this album, this band is amazing. And at that point it's like, okay, well, let's, let's try to get a sense of what else they've put out. And so you go back and you start hearing like Sunday, bloody Sunday and new year's day. And, uh, I will follow and some of their older stuff. And it's like, wow, this, this band is amazing. And from that point on, I was hooked. I, I couldn't get enough. Uh, U2 Joshua Tree was probably one of the first 10 cassettes I ever bought. Um, I, I've, I've still got the cassette. It's all worn out and stretched. I have it on CD. And from that point on, I've purchased everything U2's put out since then, either on cassette or CD or in most cases, uh, when I bought the cassette, I went back and repurchased it on CD. And as I got a little older and I got a better appreciation for their older stuff, and I got an opportunity to listen to those older albums as I borrowed them from friends. I went back and bought the CDs. And I, I think it's – I'm pretty sure I, it's safe to say I own every album U2's put out except for maybe the last two on on CD. And uh, yeah, I just can't get enough of them. I mean I don't necessarily love every single thing they've ever done. But most of the hits, most of the stuff that's come out in the top 40 – I, I found a place in my heart for it in one way or the other. Okay, so for me, U2 is very interesting. You made some really good points there. Number one, I think they do span generations. Whether you're Gen X or you're millennial, you can appreciate U2, right? But interestingly enough, U2 was, they've never been a band that I've like totally loved. You know, like I've never like been totally into them or whatever. And it kind of all, it all goes back to how it started out. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a story about U2. So when when I first heard them, I actually didn't really like you two when I first heard them. So a little bit of background in, here in Canada, uh, as you know, caveman, we have much music. There, you know, we don't have MTV. It's much music. And when I was a teenager, I watched, I watched it quite a bit. Like I used to like watching it and because and, that was sort of the, you know, back then before the internet and stuff, that was where you got a lot of information about the new bands, the new videos that were out. You really were kind of educated about music by watching much music. And I would watch it and they played Sunday Bloody Sunday over and over and over again. And I didn't like the video and I didn't like the song, to be perfectly honest with you. I just, it just wasn't my cup of tea. Like when I was a teenager, I liked a couple of things. I liked heavy metal. <laughs> um, I liked Queen, obviously, and I liked Triumph. I played guitar in a band. And, and I, so I liked music that had a lot of guitar in it. Uh, usually the more distortion, the better for the most part. And like, even when I watch much music, there used to be a show on there called Power Hour. 
Yeah, yeah, I remember. And it was like the one Pepsi hour a week. Power yeah, hour. the Pepsi Power Hour, one hour a week where they play like heavy metal songs. And I just loved it, right? And like I say, they used to play Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day a lot on much music. And I have to admit, at the time those videos would come on, it just wasn't my cup of tea. So my first impression of U2 was not a very good one. And then I remember two videos that came out on Much Music that kind of started to change my impression of the band. And 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 I'll go into that. The first one was Do They Know It's Christmas? It was a song written by Bob Geldof, I guess, or Sir Bob Geldof, I should say. It came out in 1984. And it featured all these performers raising money for starving children in Ethiopia. And I think they called themselves Band-Aid. If I remember correctly, yes, the you remember that one was Band-Aid. Yep. There was a Canadian one, too. Do you remember that cave? It was like Tears uh, Are Not Enough. Lights. Yeah. Came out in like 85. Tears Are Not Enough. David Foster, Brian Adams, that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, Band-Aid, the Band-Aid song had this video and, and there was all these like really important musicians all joining together and to sing this song and raise money and awareness of this situation in Africa. And, and the reason I bring it up is because it was on much music a lot. And, and it seemed very important. And I, I, I liked the song. It, it seemed like a good thing. And Bono was in, in the group of these musicians. And it made me think a couple of things. I thought, well, this guy must be okay. Because I've always been kind of a, a liberal spirit at heart. So helping others is just awesome, right? And so I liked the fact that he was involved. But it also made me think, like, if the music industry thinks enough of this guy to include him, well, maybe he's bigger or better than I think he is. You know, maybe I'm missing something here, right? And that leads into the second thing that kind of brought me to his attention. And it kind of made me sort of stand up and take notice of him. And Bobano, that is. And, and there was a song that came out in 85 called Sun City. I don't know if you can remember that yep, one, Kevin. I remember that one. It's about South Africa, right? Yes. It was like a protest song about yeah. artists. Are you going to play Sun City? Exactly. They, they were yep. refusing to play in South Africa until the country did something about apartheid. And yep. I think they even called themselves like Artists Against Apartheid. Or I believe correctly. that's correct. Yeah. And there was like Bob Dylan and Ringo Starr, Hall and Oates, Pat Benatar, and Bono was involved in it too. So I, again, I kind of took notice and, and I thought, well... This guy must be okay, you know, because he, he seems willing to stand up for what he believes in. And he's out there trying to make a difference in the world. So it made me kind of think, well, well I got to look into this guy a little bit more. And then there's his band, U2, obviously. And they had just released an album right around that time called The Unforgettable Fire. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a chance. And I heard the song Pride in the name of love. And I was just blown away. And I was like, wow, these guys are really good. And it was, it, that song's interesting because it's a little bit like their earlier stuff, you know, which like I say, I wasn't a huge fan of, but there was something different about that song. And we'll get into that song a bit more later. I liked the guitar in it, like the intro with the high B chord notes. And and then after that, the Joshua Tree came out in 87 and they just kind of exploded, right? And then remained in my consciousness. So it's funny that originally when I first heard them by watching their music videos and on Much Music, I didn't like them. But then once I kind of like dug into it a bit more. And then when the unforgettable fire came out, I was like, wow, these guys are actually really, really good. So, so that's my experience of, um, of you too. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's jump into our top five. And I think this will give us some uh, additional opportunity to talk about some of the things for sure. So So why why don't you, you going to start it or you would, before you want to get started before we do that, let me just set it up. So, uh, when we do our top five, sometimes we sort of give ourselves certain rules and criteria to, to, uh, ensure that the discussion goes in a certain direction. And I accuse you quite often, more than once, of just picking the textbook answers. And uh, honestly, I think with tonight's show, we're going to hear a lot of textbook responses from you. Uh, and that's fine because I think – Because <laughs> I'm this the textbook case, answer guy, right? Well, I think in this case, the textbook answers are the right answers. Um, but the the sort of uh, measuring stick we've used for this top five that you and I agreed to before we put our list together was – if at all possible, try to pick five songs from five different U2 albums because, hey, I love the Joshua Tree as much as the next guy. And I could certainly say three of my top five favorite songs are the top three big hits that I mentioned earlier where the streets have no name with or without you. And um, um, oh, my God, um, I can't even think of the third song. I'm blanking on it. Wow. Embarrassing. Uh, but that makes for a pretty boring show because I think 
a lot of people would be like, well, yeah, duh, of course those are going to be in their top five. So by forcing us to stretch our YouTube muscles a little bit and needing to review at least five different albums to pull five different songs, I think that that will create a little bit more of a discussion point. And so as we've mentioned with many of our top five before, these are not the absolute definitive best top five U2 songs ever. We're not looking for the songs that made the most money. We're not looking for the songs that charted the highest and the longest. We're not looking for the ones that have the most downloads on iTunes. These are our personal five most, uh, our favorite, our most influential, the ones we like the most, the ones that we feel are the quirky, whatever it happens to be. These are the ones that we felt needed to be included on our personal top five, and we'll be able to, to justify those decisions in just a second. But the caveat was, if at all possible, try to pick five songs from five different albums. Now, in my defense, I, I, I obviously try to do that as well. But in my defense, because uh, you mentioned how I you know, always come up with the textbook answers, um, what I actually did was when I put together my list, these are actually the personal songs, and they each mean something to me. Somewhat. So so I, I will defend them as we get into them. That's for sure. They're probably popular ones. But, you know, I, like I said before, I'm not a, like I was never like a massive U2 fan like I was with Queen or something like that. So I dig a lot deeper into their songs. So I guess a lot of my experience with them was superficial with a lot of their big hits. But um, but they all meant something to me. And I will get into that. But why don't you kick us off with your number five for and sure, work our way sure. up to number one. So your number five U2 song, what is it and why? All right. So. Uh, and I will I will sort of preface this by saying a couple of the things on my list, people are going to sort of go, what? <laughs> and this right off the bat, number five is going to be one of those ones. OK, number five. My number five U2 song is not from a U2 album at all. Wow. It's from a movie soundtrack. Really? 1995 Batman Forever soundtrack. The song is Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Do you know this song, Chris? Never heard it before. Familiar? No, I really? don't. Really? Oh, maybe okay. if I heard it, like if I heard a couple bars of it, do you want to sing some of it for me? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Um, You're a good so, singer, though. You could do it. Well, I don't yeah, know if you, I don't I if you could do Bono. Yeah, yeah. I need a few more drinks before I do that. That's fine. So, no, hey, nobody can do Bono. Nobody can do Bono like Bono except Bono. So, uh, I, I may have mentioned before, and if I haven't, 1995 was a very significant year in music for me Personally, uh, I would have been uh, – let's see. I would have been 20, 20, 21 years old depending on which point in the summer it is. And in my opinion, the music in 1995 stood out more than almost any other year of music in my entire lifetime. I was uh, midway through my university education. I was living away from home for I think the first time uh, it, during the summer. I was on my and own. And that's about the time that you met me. So you know, all these important yeah. things. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> It, personally, it was a very important time and a very influential time in my life. And the music of 1990 – so I have a couple of playlists on my phone. I have one that is exclusively the music of 95 and it's got like 200 songs on it. Oh, cool. And when I'm in a bad mood for any reason, I know if I just throw on that 1995 playlist and I listen to it for half an hour, it always puts me in a better mood because it just has my mind go to this this memories of 1995 and what all of these songs – drive me to memories that are were very positive to me. It was a very positive point in my life for a lot of reasons. Um, and so Hold Me, Th Throw Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me by U2 was on the Batman Forever soundtrack. Now, looking back, by comparison, Batman Forever is not a great superhero movie. But at the time, it was, it was considered a pretty decent superhero movie. And... U2 had this song on the soundtrack and it was sort of – it also on the soundtrack was uh, Kiss from a Rose by Seal, which was a huge hit that summer. And so this song for me, it was a U2 song that wasn't really in the same style as what they had put out previously. It was borrowing some ideas from the grunge movement that was popular at the time, but it certainly wasn't a grunge song. But it also drew influence from like the new wave songs of the 80s because there's certainly synthesizers and other sort of digital sounds in there. But it was done in a way that made it sound contemporary with the time, yet a little bit retro. And I'm a big retro guy, so uh, you know, I can, I, anyone who knows me is like, well, yeah, of course you like that. It had like all these synthesizers in it. And the music video was an animated cartoon 
that featured the U2 band in like a comic strip style video where they fought Batman like villains. So it just hit all the right notes for me, both the auditory of the song, the visual of the video, knowing that it was a part of a Batman movie. And we've already established I'm a huge Batman fan, even though the Batman forever was certainly not the greatest Batman movie that's ever come out. But just something about this song, it, it really resonates with me. And I think a lot of YouTube fans overlook it or forget it because it didn't actually ever appear on one of their studio albums. It was on the Batman Forever soundtrack. And uh, again, love it or hate it, it is a part of their music catalog. And for me, it's my number five pick. Okay, so my number five pick, I know you're going to think is a little bit textbook here, but I'm going to go with With or Without You from the Joshua Tree in 87. And here's why it's not a textbook pick, because it's personal. So I had a, I mentioned earlier, I, I played a lot of guitar when I was younger. I still play guitar to this day. But I had a band when I was in high school. I had this this trio, okay, the band, and we were called Poverty Bound. And the thing was, we only ever did originals. That was our thing. Like we would, we played, you know, quite a few different gigs and stuff, but we always played original songs. That was just what we did. But we would sometimes dabble in cover songs when we would practice, like never in front of an audience. But when we would be like one-on-one, we'd just be playing, like we would dabble in covers. And one of the songs that we used to like to play was this one. And what we would do is, is we used to, uh, one of our sort of gimmicks, I guess, on stage was we we would exchange instruments every set. So I was a guitar player and then we had a bass player and keyboard player. Like he was, he played both bass and keyboard and then we had a drummer and then we would come out, do a set and then we would switch instruments and do another set and switch instruments again and do another set. And it was just kind of our thing. And when we would practice like like without an audience, I would grab the bass and I would play this song and the bass player would sing. Now he had a tough time with the vocals obviously because Bono has an insane octave range right but we you know we do our version of the song and like i say like we never did it in front of an audience but i always really liked this song and the other thing was it was really good when it came on at the high school dance because then i could ask a girl to slow dance now of course that was always followed by a crushing rejection but hey you got <laughs> you got to try right so this song has always been important to me and, and and i always liked it so with or without you is is my song for number 5 Nice, nice. Now, I, I've heard from uh, uh, one of our mutual friends, Rob. I don't know if he was in your band that you were talking about. but he uh, No, he to... was not, no. Okay, so he yeah, he was my roommate uh, in my first year of college, which was the... Yep. the that's, how how, that's how you and I met. Yeah, yep. because and I remember of our him friend. telling me he was also in a band, and yep. they used to perform with or without you. And I, I want to say he did some of the vocals for that. And he said that there's a... With or without you, the vocals start like sort of the like he start like Bono's original singing is like in this very low register. And then halfway through the song, he like "Ah," like he gets really high and he starts to pick up the song and continue it at this sort of high register for the rest of the song. And I remember Rob was telling me when they used to do a cover of this, he was the singer and he goes, I couldn't hit those high notes. I'm not trained for that. He goes, I can sing those low notes like nobody's business. And let me tell you, Rob knew how to sing. And he said, Rob was, was just, a classically trained singer. He did, but, but he, he had, a, but he, but he, like, but he was, was a bass. He was, he had a very, very low register, very low register. Yes. Even so on the falsetto. He, I don't think he could hit these. Notes. No, that, he, he was yeah. first to admit that. Yeah. And, but that's what he told me. He goes, when we used to play with or without you on our, ba- on our cover band, he goes, I would just sing the whole song at that low register. And he goes, most people, when they heard it, they wouldn't necessarily realize that they've, that I did jump up to that high register. And he goes, we were able to get away with it. And I was, I, that always stuck with me. I remembered it. I'm like, Hey, you know, that's, that's just a, a you know, a musician's trick, know your limits yep. and, and play within them. And he's like, I know that I can't hit that high note. So why try to hit it and screw it up? I'm just going to stick with the low register that I know I'm good at. So I honestly thought that's sort of where you were going to go with that. So it was interesting to hear that you didn't No. Okay, okay. So you're number four. What do you got? All right. So my first, my number five was from 1995. I'm going to continue to move into the future, which I know guarantees I'm not going to overlap with anything on your list. No, you won't. I'm stuck no, in the past. You know that. In 2004, you put an out, put out an album called How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. The first single off of that album is my number four pick. It was called Vertigo. And you got to go in our little wayback machine here and to 2004 which was 15 years ago Mm -hmm. and it may not seem like that long ago but it was quite a while back and in the early 2000s 
rock and roll. I'm using these air quotes. Can you hear the air quotes? <laughs> I can rock hear them. and roll. Yes, of course. Was essentially, I don't want to say dead, but was in mourning. It was hiding. There was not a lot of quote unquote rock and roll. There's certainly uh, pockets of things like heavy metal, but we're not in the mainstream. But as far as mainstream, it was all pop, teeny pop, bubblegum pop. You had like Britney Spears and yeah. like Christina Aguilera. You had this very top 40 bubblegum pop, everything positive kind of uh, kind of music. And that's what was dominating the airwaves at the time. And then here comes you too. 2004 with their 25 years of musical experience and they said you know what we're gonna hit a note that nobody's hitting right now and it's gonna work and they put up vertigo and it is by every every means a rock and roll song guitars and drums and heavy lyrics and and they come right out of the gate and like it immediately like it's got a very heavy beginning and they just jump right into it and it's like guitar and it's there is no three seconds into this song this is a rock and roll song there's no doubt you're not, you know, this isn't Britney Spears. This isn't this, you know, young girl singing this pop song. This is a rock and roll song in every sense of the of the description. And they just jump right out with it. And it did extremely well. It uh, it came out in 2004. It was the first single released from the album. And um, it 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 did exactly what you expected it to do. It charted very well. It hit number one in many of the markets. Um it doesn't look like it hit number one in the U.S., but it no, it wasn't hit. popular in the U.S. for whatever no, reason. UK yeah. hit number one, yeah. Canada number two, and yeah. in the top ten, just about everywhere else. U.S. It looks like it hit thirty-one in their top forty. Again, it was this was after um, after they had had sort of a break, right? They hadn't put anything new out in quite some time, and their last couple albums. Uh, I mean, in 2000, they put out All That You Can't Leave Behind, which was pretty good. But before that, 1997 was the pop album, which was not very well received. So at this point, you got to think a lot of hardcore fans and music critics and music directors are starting to think, is YouTube done? Do they really know what music is anymore? Should they just like keep playing those greatest hits and stop putting out new stuff? And they put out this album, How to Dismantle Atomic Bomb. And this first single, Vertigo, was just... It was like a shock to the system. It's what people who were not impressed with the bubblegum pop, people like you and I who were like, we weren't bubblegum pop target audience, right? By then in 2004, I would have been 30 years old. I'm not listening to Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and singing along. No, I'll be honest. I sort of of was. But (laughs) that wasn't really where I wanted to be. And then U2 comes out with this song and I'm like, yes, this, this is what I need right now. And it just was the right kind of song at the right kind of time, and it hit really well, and it charted very well, and it reminded people, U2 is definitely a rock and roll band. Number four, Vertigo from from 2004. No, that's like, a good pick. Uh, my number four was an interesting one. I mentioned this to my wife before before I came into the studio, and I mentioned the songs because I'm like, do you like U2? I want to share these with you. And I mentioned my number four, and she's like, that song sucks. <laughs> uh, I'm like, okay, great. Uh, but my number four is Angel of Harlem from Rattle and Hum song, in 1988. And the, the intro is just so simple. It's just a C and F chord, right? And then the horns kick in. I love the horns in this song. And it's about Billie Holiday, I believe. It's, but it's really about New York City. This song has a feel about it. like, And I think... Well, at least for me anyway, like it showed to me that this this band could actually have some soul in their music. I, I really like this song. And Bono's vocals are incredible. And and that's the thing. I don't think he gets enough love for just how good his vocals are. He reminds me of John Lennon in the sense that like if a lesser singer tried to sing some of these songs, they just come off as screaming. But Bono's got such a command of that higher register that he just makes it look easy. And this song's a good example of that because it almost comes off as a simple, straightforward song. Like, I think at least musically speaking, but the vocals are actually really, really amazing. Like, they're pitch perfect. High register, lots of emotion in his voice. Bono checks off all the boxes in this song, and I think it's a great song, and it's my number four. Love it. Yeah, I got to admit, my uh, so I love this song, too. It's from the Rattle and Hum 
uh, album, which is predominantly a live album, like it's a live recording of a concert, but it had a few studio songs, including their two singles, which was Angel of Harlem and Desire. Desire, yeah. Both songs, and it's funny, since we've been recording this, when, when we record, I usually have the uh, 80s music channel on my television on mute right. while we were talking the video for desire was on oh, about nice. 20 minutes ago cool. and i was like all right there's youtube perfect perfect timing uh i love both of those songs and it's funny because my wife's a big youtube fan she hates both of those like hate capital h yeah, hates both of those songs and i just don't get it and she's like to me those aren't real youtube songs they just they're so different from other youtube stuff she's like no those don't count because uh, I asked her, I'm like, what are your top five, you two? And so she fired out a few. And, uh, and then when I was sort of running down some of my lists and I originally had a list of like 15 songs and Desire was uh, probably within my top 10. And she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you like that song. So I'm glad you have Angel of Harlem on this list. Uh, I, I like to, I, I like that Brad and Hum is getting some love on the list. So Yeah. So there you go. OK. Number three. Number three, number three is got? a song I think only the most hardcore U2 fans will probably even ever have heard of. And if you're a YouTube fan and you don't know this song, I am doing you a great service because I'm going to give you a treat right here and right now. Nice. In 1985, U2 put out like an EP. It's a four-song album called Wide Awake in America. Three of the songs are recorded live. The fourth one is not, and it is called Three Sunrise. The Three Sunrises. It's from 1985. Now, I had never heard this song until I went to university. And as we've already mentioned in the show, my roommate was a guy named Rob. He was a few years older than me. And he had this incredible love of music and this vast music library that he brought with him to college. And when we showed up, he's, you know, we're introducing each other and we're talking about, you know, what are your likes and dislikes? You're going to live with this person for a year. You might as well get to know them. And as he's unpacking, he's unpacking all these musical cassettes. And it's like, box after box after box of cassettes and I'm just watching him unpack. I'm like, wow, I, I thought I brought a lot of stuff with me, but this guy just had so much music. And as we started to talk about our musical tastes, he realized my tastes kind of sucked because I was all about top 40 radio. And he introduced me to so much music from the seventies and eighties that I just was not aware of. Uh, and this was a U2 song. Like, well, U2 was one of the bands we both liked. We both agreed on. And I remember him playing this for me and I'm like, is that new? I've never heard that. And he goes, no, 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 no. This is almost 10 years old at this point. And he's like, this is from, and he gives me a little bit of the history. And I'm like, this song is great. It's called the three sunrises. And yeah, uh, it, it, I don't know if it was ever released as a single, but it's one of those ones where when I need to, uh, you know, just flake out for a few minutes, I, I pop on my YouTube playlist. And this is one of those songs that I just, it, again, it brings a smile to my face, partly because it reminds me of that first year university when I first heard it, but partly because it's just a great tune by U2. And if you're a big U2 fan and you've never heard this song, do yourself a favor. It's called The Three Sunrises. It's from the album Wide Awake in America, 1985. Check it out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Very cool. You're educating us all. Uh, okay, so my number three. Uh, so as you know, I usually don't like anything past the 80s <laughs> for the most part, right? And But this is my one song that takes place after the 1980s, not by much because it's from 1991 and it's even better than the real thing. Nice. So the reason I'm mentioning this song is because you got this band that does these like protest tunes and makes these historical references and shows some soul, as I mentioned before, with Angel to Harlem and they use horns and stuff like that in that song. And then all of a sudden they come out with this song and it's totally different than anything that they had done prior. And... I think if it wasn't for Bono's vocals, you wouldn't even know that this was U2. It's like they almost totally reinvented themselves for this this song. And like the intro is unlike anything they'd done before, or at least anything I knew them for. Like the guitar at the beginning has this kind of octave effect on it. It's totally different groove to it. And the video has him like spinning around yeah, like the spinning, blue like, lights. His head and yeah, through his legs. Yeah. yeah. It's just, again, interesting take on how to, how do you present a band that's got 20 music videos? How do you make the next one unique? Here's and, a way to do it. Simple, but it worked. Exactly. And the song is actually really good. Like it, it, it's a little bit more style than substance. Maybe, maybe that's where the departure is for them. Because up until this point, like you, you sort of you're, you're a bit more used to their songs that have like a lot of substance to them, you know, and this one comes off as all style, like right out of the gate. Right. So maybe that's why it's different. 
I, I don't think it was a really big hit or anything like that. I I don't know how it was received by by real quote unquote U two fans. Maybe you could shed some light on that for me. But uh, but I like this song a lot. So I do too. And and so I have the again I, when we do these shows, I like to have the Wikipedia pages up or some other page. I mean, obviously Wikipedia is not always perfect, but it's usually pretty close. Uh, even better, the real thing doesn't look like it hit number one, but it does look like it made the top ten in many places. The U.S. again, it sort of cracked the top thirty. Uh, like you, I enjoy this song a lot. So I want to go back to something you just said about style over substance before mm-hmm. I move on. So this was from the album Akchun Baby, which, if I remember correctly, came out in 91. 91, yeah. Yes, 91. It had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six singles released from it. And it's one of those albums that personally, uh, when I listen to it, I listen to it start to finish. I don't skip over any of the songs. I like every song on this album. I think it's a great album. I would hesitate to say perfect, but it is very good. Like there are very few albums where you can put it on, listen to all 10, 11, 12 tracks and not feel like, ah, I'm going to skip this one. I'm going to skip this one too. Like this is one where I, on my YouTube playlist, I have all the songs from this album on my phone and I just listen to them when they come up. I love this song a lot. Uh, so this album, they th- came out and then they did the Zoo TV tour. So this brings me to an interesting point. Have you ever seen U2 live in concert, Chris? I have not. No. I got to see them last year uh, live in performance. It was the first time I'd ever seen them. I was trying to get to that Zoo TV tour when I was younger, and I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the money. I couldn't get the tickets when they were for sale. There was a lot of things that just didn't fall into place for me, which was unfortunate because uh, what I read about it afterwards, it was phenomenal. And it was very much like you're saying, style – well, I don't want to say style over substance because I think there was certainly the substance was there, but the style was every bit as important as the substance with the Zoo TV tour. It was a lot of, you know, you had the U2 songs with the U2 lyrics and the U2, like they always seem to have a message in a lot of their songs because Bono's very politically active, which is great, uh, whether you agree with his politics or not. But in this one, the Zoo TV tour had like all these monitors and it was really taking advantage of where um, technology and media was going like this would have been the early nineties. So this was before the internet. This was before mobile phones. This was, um, you know, in an age where television was still the way to consume media. And it, it was this merging of music and media that hadn't previously been seen and certainly hadn't been used in the way they were using it. And so the, the zoo TV tour got a lot of high praise for the visual aspects and the showmanship components of their concert. I mean, the concert, they, they sounded great as they almost always do, but it was all these other peripheral pieces that got a lot of, uh, a lot of praise from the fans and the media. And I, th- I think that's important. And I think that reflects what you were saying with some of these songs is uh, when they put out these videos, they were stylistically different. And, uh, I, and I think that's important. YouTube has been able to change with the times. And this was an example of how, you know, they could potentially predict where are things going in the 90s and move in a way that was advantageous to them as a band. Hmm, there you go. All right. All right. Where were we? Number uh, – You're number, number two, two. I okay. think. Yeah. So I've given you my oddball selections and now we're going to stick to a couple of textbook answers. My number two is from the aforementioned 1987 Joshua Tree. Okay. And my song is I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Oh, yeah. Great song. And for many, many years when someone said to me, you're a big U2 fan, what's your favorite U2 song? I wouldn't even hesitate. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's my favorite U2 song. But it's my number two pick. And and why is that? What is it? Just It's a great well, slow song? Like, no, well, so my number one pick has obviously surpassed this, but I don't know. Something about it. So The Joshua Tree for a long time was my favorite album. Where the Streets Have No Name, uh, always been one of my favorite songs. Um, with or without you, I still found like that's the one, two, three on that album is those three songs, and they were massive hits, like phenomenal hits. And I listen to a lot of uh, when I listen to the radio today, I listen to like favorites of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Mm-hmm. And these three songs are in heavy rotation, like they they are considered staples of that era for a reason. They were phenomenally, they were great songs then, they're great songs now, and they they charted very well, and people love them for good reason because they're great songs. But I don't know. It was just something about this song. Um, maybe not that it was a slow song, slower song, but just something about it really struck me and resonated with me. That it wasn't even so much the lyrics per se as much as it was the the rhythm and the sound and the instrumentation. Just it was different. I think it was 
familiar because it was U2, but different than what I was hearing at the time. And it just something about it stuck with me. And it's always been one of my favorites. So, so my son has been getting interested in watching American Idol recently, you know, which good or bad, right? But uh, we were watching a bit of it tonight. You know, we had recorded it and we watched a show. And I, and I was trying to explain to him the difference between a good singer and a great singer. Because he's like, oh, they're really good singers. I said, yeah, but they're not great. And he's like, why not? And to me, it's because you could be technically a great vocalist, but you have to have emotion in yeah. there. That yeah. You have to inject it. And I think you, the example that you just gave with, um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. To me, when I listen to that song, there is so much emotion in Bono's voice, in his vocals. It's like, that's what he injects into that song. So yeah. to me, that's what stands out as, as a, an amazing part of, of that song. So so good choice. All I right. like that one. That's okay. my number two. Good one. My number two, I'm going to stay with the same album, with the Joshua Tree. And it's, uh, you mentioned, it's Where the Streets Have No Name. And at the time that this album came out, I remember I was working with this guy and he said, oh, you 2 is the Beatles of the 80s. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? That's just ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Like, I think the Beatles are the greatest band of all time. And I thought, ah, oh, man, you can't make that claim. And then again, like I mentioned, I watched a lot of much music around that time. And I saw this video for the Where the Streets Have No Name played over yeah. and over on much music. And I really liked it. Like... Like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And like, we definitely got to do a Beatles show, you know, here on the podcast at some point, because I just love them so much. But like I say, when I when I first saw this video for Where the Streets Over No Name, I loved it. And because to me, it's an homage to the Beatles, right? Because oh, the, for sure. the Beatles um, stopped performing live concerts in 1966, um, their concert at uh, Candlestick Park in San Francisco. It was their last live concert they ever did. They continued to make music, obviously, but they didn't play live anymore after that. And then one day in 1969, the band goes and grabs like Billy Preston and they go up on a roof in downtown London and they just play this impromptu concert, you know, just totally unannounced. And then you've got U2 doing this video, which is a total homage to that, right? Absolutely. And there's even like people milling about on the street and looking up and they're like, you know, what's going on here? You know, and they, they gather around and they watch the band play. But the song itself is good. And, and, and I, I think it's open to interpretation. But for me, when I hear this song, it's always been about the fact that it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where your neighborhood is, where your city is, where your country is. We are all the same. We're all human beings. We don't need to be judged based on where we live. And and, and that's, the, I know that's not really in the lyrics, you know, but it's, it's, it's always what this song has been about to me when I hear it. And, and I know that might sound weird because, you know, even if a song doesn't necessarily have lyrics that state a certain thing, it's about what you get out of it, I guess. And it's always been a, about how songs make me feel. Um, do you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, like there's no yeah, lyrics that yeah, really say that, but that's what I always feel when I hear this song. I'm like, it doesn't matter where you come from. We're all human beings. So you know what I mean? I do. And I, I'm just, uh, I remember reading something or hearing something not too long ago where they were either interviewing Bono or they were like talking about something from the band notes. And apparently there was like supposed to be some alternate lyrics in this song where, um, he more clearly talked on the about the topics you were just talking about. Like I think more specifically, uh, unfortunately, I, I I don't I can't find the things right now, and it's just blanking out of my mind. But it was this really interesting discussion where they were like, I, I want to say they were asking Bono himself, like, what do these lyrics mean? And he started reciting like these were some of the lyrics that I had originally that I changed. And he goes by when these were the original lyrics, these other lines meant blah blah blah. But by changing it, it opened up these lyrics to mean so much more. But if you hear where the original lyrics started, it sort of gives you this different perspective of the song. And I really hate that I have to be vague like this and I don't have the details. It, bu it bugs me that I can't. Uh, I sort of – it's like I'm this big tease. But I've always loved this song too. This this has been uh, – you know, someone's like, give me your top five favorite U2 songs of all time as we're doing right now. But if I was able to pick multiple songs from the same album, this one would certainly have made my top five list. So I'm glad that you hit it. Um I love it. And one of the things – so I've mentioned before, I'm a big music video fan. I love music videos, especially music videos that came out in the 80s. You're watching them right now. I am watching them right <laughs> now go. as we speak. <laughs> and one of the things that they did in the 90s 
try and keep people interested in music videos was a phenomenon called pop-up videos. Do you remember pop-up videos? Oh, yes. I remember VH1 that. VH1 pop-up videos. Yep. And essentially they took these old for, – for our younger audience who does has no idea what I'm talking about. So you had your, your music video and in order to encourage people to continue to watch videos that they might not otherwise want to watch or go back and watch old videos that they'd already seen a dozen times. It's like, why would I keep watching this video? It's boring. They would – literally have bubbles pop up on the screen with little tidbits and trivia about the songs or about the video or about something that's going on. You know, again, this was before the internet. So they actually, VH1 had hired people to do fact checking and fact investigation to throw these interesting tidbits onto these videos to entice you to watch them yet again. And I remember where the streets have no name was one of these pop-up videos. And I can remember watching it many times and they were talking about how, you know, this was an homage to this Beatles, uh, this Beatles concert. And this is how you two announced this concert. They went on the radio in uh, California and they announced it over one radio channel. We're going to be performing. And then it's like they were only able to perform the song like three times before the police genuinely showed up and shut them down. And a lot of the footage you see in this video, it was not rehearsed. This was really what happened. But because they only got to sing the song three times, they had to make the video out of what they had. So it, it was – I can remember watching this pop-up video and as much as I enjoyed the song and as much as I thought the video was clever – Seeing the pop-up video with all these little facts show, thrown in your face made me enjoy it even more. It's like watching your favorite movie and then hearing the director audio commentary and learning all these different things about why a scene was shot a certain way or why a person was cast in the movie. The pop-up video for Where the Streets Have No Name always stuck with me because it was just so full of interesting details that made me like the song even more. There you go. Okay, so what have you got for your number one U2 song of all time. So before we go to number one, Mm -hmm. I want to take another little sidestep. Okay. Chris, are you familiar with a documentary film called It Might Get Loud? Uh, No, I'm not. So in 2008, a documentary film called It Might Get Loud was released. I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival. Okay. It is a look at uh, three guitarists, three musicians of three generations Talking about how they became musicians, why they stayed musicians, how they perform their art, how their art has evolved over the years, uh, how they feel they have made their mark on the music industry. And it includes Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, The Mm -hmm. Edge from U2, and Jack White of The White Stripes. Okay. So you have these three musicians. And so part of the movie is a biography on each of these three musicians. And they're constantly cutting back and forth. So like for me – I'm not the world's biggest Jack White fan, but I can certainly appreciate his music and I can appreciate what he's doing for music. And But honestly, I, I didn't really care so much about his backstory. But it's not like, here's 20 minutes on Jack White. It was like, here's a two, three minute bit. Then we're going to cut to Jimmy Page. Then we're going to cut to the edge. Then we're going to cut. So it was constantly back and forth. And, and then it would come back to the three of them together in a room where they would actually bounce ideas off of each other. And then at the end of the documentary, they have a jam session with the three of them. And it, it, it's a if you're a YouTube fan and you are not familiar with this documentary, you need to find it. It's called It Might Get Loud. The Edge is one of the three performers that they feature. And it was really, really – it's a really, really good documentary uh, even if you're not a big fan of these three artists. But if you are a fan of any of these three artists, I strongly recommend you take a look at it. So anyway, okay. I digress. OK, my number one. My number one comes from – the Akchun Baby album, which we've already talked about a little bit. My number one YouTube favorite song of all time is Mysterious Ways. Oh, that's a good one. And as I mentioned before, music and certain times in my life, music has been very influential, very important, and holds a very special place in my heart. And I've already mentioned 1995 being an important music year for me. My other very important music year is 1991. So on my phone, I literally have two playlists that – are labeled by year. I have a 1995 playlist and a 1991 playlist because I feel both of those years were important musically to me. Uh, 1991, I was 16 going on 17. So I got to think an important influential time in my life. It helped, you know, it was a time where I'm still trying to develop my own voice and, and, and figure out what I want to do with my life and who I am and all that crap. And uh, this album came out. And as we mentioned before, incredibly stylistic very different than what you two had put out before. The first single was The Fly, 
unlike any song they had put out before then. And then the second single was Mysterious Ways. And just something about Mysterious Ways didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't the biggest song off the album, although it was a pretty big song. Uh, it just, every time I hear that song, I'm like, wow, Th- it doesn't get any better than this. Like this song to me is just as close to a perfect song as you can get. And, and in my opinion, it's the perfect U2 song. This, and, is, this is my favorite U2 song. And, and, and the thing is, it, it's, it, it's U2, but it's, but it's not U2. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, like, yeah. it, like you could tell it's them, but it, it's so different. And like, like they just keep reinventing themselves over the years, which I think is pretty cool. You know, good, good pick, good pick, good pick. I'm going to go back to uh, the eighties cause that's what I want to do. And it's pride in the name of love is my number yeah. one. No surprise there. No, that's no shock. That's a great pick. And in a lot of ways, when I think of you two, I just think of this song. Like, the video's got Bono in that amazing 1984 mullet, you know? So there's that, which I love. <laughs> yes. But it's such an amazing song. The guitar riff in the intro, it's all those high notes based on that B chord, and the riff changes throughout the song, you know? I mean, that is that is some pretty cool guitar playing, because it's not just three-chord rock, you know, and that's definitely there. But when it comes to the lyrics of this song, I know there's a mistake in the lyrics about the whole early morning April 4 because when Martin Luther Jr. got shot, um, it was actually in the evening, right? Yeah. But I mean, in the poetic song license, man, exactly. You know, a little poetic license. They, he's changed it. Bono has changed the lyrics in in subsequent concerts. Now he says uh, early evening, April four. You know. But anyway, the, the song is obviously about Martin Luther King Jr. and and I really like this song so much. It it, it is one of my favorite songs of all time. It really, really is. And yep. to me, it's it. this song is about living your life with pride, not overconfidence. It's not about swagger or about selfishness. It's about humanity and pride. And when I hear this song, that's what I think about. And I think it's an amazing tribute to a man, Martin Luther King Jr., obviously, who lived his life with pride. And he challenged others to do the same. Because I think over the years, Martin Luther King Jr.'s message it sometimes gets a little bit muddled, you know what I mean? And, and and his message was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, it wasn't just about the, the civil rights movement. I mean, what he believed was a very simple concept. You know, he believed that there were two sets of laws in this world, those that were made by man and those that were made by a higher authority. And he believed that not until all the laws made by man were consistent with those made by a higher authority would we live in a just society and one society that we would all be proud to live in. And for me, this song just captures that whole thing perfectly. And so for all the reasons that I mentioned, musically, lyrically, you know, thematically, I think it's U2's best song. And it, like I said, it's one of my favorite songs of all time. So good pick. I, yeah. I can't dispute your number one. That's a really good pick. As I mentioned before, when you asked me what got you into U2, this was my introduction to U2. And, and like you said, in your opinion, it's your number one song. I, I, I can fully support that that decision. It, it obviously holds a special place in my heart because it was the, the song that put me onto you too, and I've never looked back since then. So that's a good pick. I like that a lot. Yep. Great show. Okay, time now to have some fun with Caveman. All right, Caveman, you know you like to do it. I like to do it. It's time now to have a round of the winner's circle from the $100,000 Pyramid. K-Band, to get to the top of the pyramid, super easy. All you have to do is guess the names of six singers. But the catch, like Bono, these singers only have one name. Okay? Okay. So to help you guess the one-name singers, I can only give you lists of their songs. Okay? Okay. So I'm going to list the songs. You give me the, the name of the singer that only has one name. Okay? Ready? Go. 1999. Prince. Like a Virgin. Madonna. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Bat Out of Hell. Oh, Meatloaf. The Real Slim Shady. Without Me. Oh, uh, Eminem. Angel. 
It wasn't me. Boombastic. Hey, sexy lady. Oh, uh, Shaggy? Yes. Oh, wow. If I, got that. if I could turn back time, believe, just like Jesse James. Oh, um. I got you, babe. Oh, it's Cher. Picture and I go game. You got them all. I, I think you went to the top of the pyramid in like record time. So I think we, we might have beat Billy Crystal's record there. No, was, no, his record will stand forever. But I got to admit, I've had a little help here while we were while this segment has been going on. Yep. There's a Prince video on TV right now as we're recording this. So when the first one came up and you said 1999, I'm literally looking at Prince going, that's Prince. Awesome job, man. You did it. You won the money. So uh, with all the money that you won, uh, maybe you can buy me a Fonzie doll. I don't know, something like that. So that'd be nice. Okay, so uh, so great show. I mean, you just you just killed the turn, the pyramid right there in the, in the winner's circle, so good for you. Um, great show, great topic. I thought it was great. Uh, so next week, we're going to come back and we're going to take a look at a movie. So it's my turn to nominate a film. I want you to go back to the 1980s because that's what I want to do. And we're going to take a look at a movie. I don't know if this movie could get made today. Probably not. Um, but I want you to go back to 1982 and we are going to come back next week and we're going to talk about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Are you are you ready to take the uh, the challenge? Oh, I am indeed. I, I've seen this movie before, but it has been quite a long time since I've seen it. So I am actually very much looking forward to watching it again. Yeah, and me too. And I'm very interested to see how it holds up after all these years. So we, again, will definitely see that. Um, but uh, until then, if you want to reach out to Derek, you'll find him uh, on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. You'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien. Of course, the website is popgoesyourworld.com. And um, like I said, if you enjoy the show, make sure you go to iTunes and uh, leave a review for the show there. That'd be great. But until next time, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.